Well, good morning. <laughs> good to be with you guys this morning. Man, uh, I got a phone call yesterday from Ryan, and he's like, hey, I'm puking my guts out. Can you lead worship for me tomorrow? <laughs> I was like, okay, we're going to make it happen. All right. <laughs> so full morning for me, but just really grateful to be with you guys this morning. Uh, if you are new or visiting, my name is Brandon. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, as always, it's good to be with you. Looking forward to studying God's Word with you guys again this morning. Uh, this fall, if you've been with us, we've been uh, studying the books of First and Second Peter. and uh, Those are books uh, that are written by the Apostle Peter, uh, one of the twelve disciples, to uh, uh, a church that is uh, in the ancient Roman Empire, and a part of the empire kind of around modern-day Turkey. And uh, last week, we finished up the letter of 1 Peter, his first letter. That was written in about 80, early eighty sixty, so maybe eighty sixty one or 62. Um, and this week, we're going to begin his second letter, which is 2 Peter. And so what's important to note is that the audience that Peter is writing to in 1 Peter and in 2 Peter, these two separate letters, it's the same audience. It's the same church. And in fact, you'll see as we read uh, 2 Peter uh, that he references his first letter to this group of Christians. And so it's the same group of people in this area that he's writing to. But the occasion for his writing, the reason why he's writing is a little bit different this time. In 1 Peter... He's writing in light of the suffering that these Christians were experiencing for their faith. He's, their new allegiance to Jesus was changing their lives and, and their society and their families and, uh, and their friends and their employers. They kind of mocked and ostracized them. They were beginning to kind of experience persecution for their faith. And Peter's words in his first letter were meant to uh, encourage and instruct these young Christians in light of that suffering that they were experiencing. And so what's happening is that they felt like foreigners, they felt like aliens, they felt like exiles in their own city, in their own town, in their own country. And Peter writes in, in 1 Peter and he says, yeah, you feel that way because you are. You are exiles, but you're God's elect exiles. You are his chosen people, ones he has chose to direct his love towards, ones that he has chose to adopt and make part of his family. And so Peter reminds them about their identity in Christ and the secure hope that they have as God's adopted children and has people. And he says, you're exiles here, but you are citizens of heaven. And this is the source of hope that they're going to need if they're going to persevere, if they're going to endure in the midst of a world that's opposed to Jesus. And he reminds them about how this new identity that they have, this new identity is God's chosen people, his elect exiles, how it gives them a new calling and a new purpose to be God's royal priesthood, to be his gospel ambassadors sent to their families and their friends and their neighbors and their co-workers so that they might experience and they might hear about the good news of the gospel and might come to actually love and worship God. So the way, in 1 Peter, Peter says, the way that they lived, especially in the midst of their suffering, the way that they demonstrated the gospel with their lives, that was going to give them opportunities to declare the gospel with their words. And so Peter reminds them about their identity and about their calling, and he urges them to stand firm in the truths of the gospel, stand firm in the truth about who they are in Christ, who God has made them to be, and who he has sent them as his people, even though they're facing opposition. And so what's happening in first, the letter of 1 Peter is that Peter is teaching these Christians how to live in light of opposition to the gospel from outside of the church community. 
He's teaching them how to live in light of opposition to the gospel from outside of the church community. But in 2 Peter, what's going on is that Peter is equipping them. Peter is teaching them. He's giving them the necessary tools to defend against opposition to the gospel from inside the church community. If 1 Peter was about opposition from outside the church community, then 2 Peter is about opposition to the gospel from within the church community. You see, what was happening is that there were false teachers who were beginning to influence this still young church. 2 Peter is written maybe three or four years after 1 Peter, and it's right near the end of Peter's life, and you'll see him reference that in his letter here. But what's happening is that these false teachers are beginning to influence the still young church with theologically and morally heretical teaching, and they were leading people away from the truths about the gospel. As one commentator writes, the enemy uh, enemy operatives have infiltrated the church, and by their words and their behaviors, these spiritual con artists were denying some of the basic truths of the faith, and they were distorting the actual truth of Scripture. And in the coming weeks, we'll look at more of what these false teachers were peddling and their jacked-up theology. But what's important to understand now, and what's always important to understand, is that heretical theology always leads to heretical morality. Heretical theology always leads to heretical morality. Some people think that theology is not really that important. That's just for scholars. It's just for pastors. And that what really matters is just how you live. That, that's, the, that's the thing that matters. But that thinking reveals a, a, a significant naivety because the truth is that everyone is a theologian and everyone teaches theology because theology is simply what you believe about God. And when you talk or you live in light of what you believe about God, then you are teaching your, your theology to other people. You are speaking about it. You are living it. You are showing it. You are revealing your theology to other people. Your theology always determines what you do because what you believe always determines how you live. If I didn't believe that my credit card would pay for my groceries at the grocery store, I wouldn't swipe the card. If you didn't believe that the chair you're sitting in was going to hold you when you sat down in it, like you wouldn't sit down in it. It changes the way that you, what you believe about what will happen changes what you do. And like if these false teachers were, were teaching that Peter's addressing here, one of the things that they believed is that there was, gonna, there was no judgment for sin. There was no penalty for sin. God was never going to, God was never going to bring judgment towards sin. Then you would live however you wanted to live. You would do whatever you thought made you happy because why not? You see, what you believe fundamentally changes what you do. Everyone is a theologian. The question is whether you're a good one or a bad one. And so in Peter, Second Peter, Peter is writing to kind of blow the cover off of these infiltrators, to blow the cover off of these fake teachers, these fake disciples. And he does it by reminding them about the truths of the gospel. Shock, right? He reminds them about the truths of the gospel so that they'll be able to tell the fake disciples from the real disciples. Um, Bank employees, you know how they're trained to to discern fake money? They're not shown a lot of fake money. They're shown a lot of real money. And when you see the real thing and when you know what the real thing is and when you know what it looks like and you understand it well, Then when you see a fake, you're like, that is totally a fake. Because you know what the real thing 
looks like. So too, that's Peter's goal. He'd remind them about the truths of the gospel and what always happens when the gospel takes root in our hearts and in our lives. And he says, you gotta know that truth because you gotta know when you see a fake. And when, what we'll see in our passage this morning is that the truths of the gospel, they fundamentally change us. And it always results in this ongoing growth in Christ-like character. This ongoing spiritual growth, the Bible calls this sanctification. It's this fancy theological word. Sanctification is this fancy theological word, which just refers to our ongoing, increasing Christ-likeness. The way over time by which we look more and more like Jesus in our attitudes, in our actions, in our behaviors, in our words, in our thoughts, and all of that kind of stuff. And this ongoing process of becoming more and more like Jesus, this sanctification, is evidence of genuine faith in the gospel. And Peter's going to tell us that that's because Christ-like character only comes from God's indwelling power living in you. Increasing, ongoingly increasing, Christ-like character only comes from God's power living in you and living through you. And so Peter writes to these young believers, reminding them about the truths of the gospel so that they would both live in light of this truth of the gospel and so that they would not be led astray by false teachers. And so this morning, as, as we study, what I want to do is I want to highlight for us three really important truths about the gospel that Peter reminds these believers of. And then what we'll do is we'll talk about how those truths uh, apply to our lives and apply to the situation that Peter was in. So with that in mind, let's, let's pray, and we'll read the passage, dive into our study of God's Word this morning. Amen? God, thanks so much for you. Thanks so much for your word. God, we are so grateful that like the words that were written nearly 2,000 years ago by the Apostle Peter are words that were written for to an audience, to a place, but are words that we need to hear as well. And so we, God, God we just, I just ask humbly that you might use me as like your vessel, that you might speak the truths of your words into our lives this morning, God, for our good, for your glory. But most of all, God, I just we just want to live as your people, and we don't want to be ignorant, and we don't want to be unaware. And so, God, we just ask that, um, just by the power of your Spirit, that you would um, just enable me to teach rightly, and enable us to receive rightly from your Word. And so we just want to put ourselves under the authority of your Word, that it would be good news for us that would change our lives. Thanks, God. Amen. Amen. So we are in Second Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who, through the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, have received a faith as precious as ours. Grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and through Jesus our Lord. His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. And through these, he's given us his very great and precious promises so that through them, you might participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. And for this reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness and to goodness, knowledge, and to knowledge, self-control, and to self-control, perseverance, and to perseverance, godliness, and to godliness, mutual affection, and to mutual affection, love for. If you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they'll keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But whoever does not have them is nearsighted and blind, forgetting that they have been cleansed from their past sins. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, make every effort to confirm your calling and election. For if you do these things, you will never stumble, and you'll receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So again, this morning, 
as we study, what I want to do is I want to highlight three things about the passage that Peter, three gospel truths that Peter reminds these Christians of, and we'll talk about how they apply into our lives and into the, the situation that Peter's addressing here. First thing is that Peter says, the gospel fundamentally changes our identity and our purpose. The gospel fundamentally changes our identity and our purpose. First thing, our identity, Peter highlights this in the opening verses in a couple of ways, but first, he does it in the way he introduces himself. He introduces himself as Simon Peter. That's really important. Names had a lot more significance back then than they do now, and Peter is making a statement in the very first words of his letter. You see, Simon is his old name before he met Jesus, and Peter is the new name that Jesus gives him. And and when Jesus makes Peter one of his disciples, then Peter is given this new name. He's called Peter. You see, throughout this Throughout this letter, Peter is reminding, throughout his first letter, Peter's reminding these Christians and reminding us about, how our, new, about our new identity in Christ. And in the beginning of 2 Peter, he says, don't forget, Jesus changes everything. He fundamentally changes who you are. He fundamentally changes your identity. And the name change in, for Peter is a, it's, it's symbol, it's symbolic of his identity change. He's now one of God's chosen people, his adopted children. And Peter always ties this new identity with our new purpose and our new calling. It's in 1 Peter, it's in 2 Peter. He always ties these things together. And our calling is that we might live for God and not for ourselves, to be God's royal priesthood, to be his ambassadors, to be his holy nation. Those are references from 1 Peter. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul articulates it this way, speaking about our identity and purpose. He says, Christ died so that we would no longer live for ourselves, but for him who died and raised us again. And here Peter reminds these Christians of this calling to be God's people, to be his holy nation, to be his people who are set apart for him. Verse 3, he says, his divine power has given you everything you need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. You see, Jesus called us to be his. Jesus called us to be his that we might live new lives. He called us by his glory and by his goodness, which means that he calls us to see and experience his glory and his goodness and to imitate that in our life as we see it. That's what he's talking about at the end of verse 4 when he says that through these promises of the gospel that we would participate in the divine nature. Peter's not saying like, oh, you become like a little G God or something. No, he's saying that as God's children, we begin to imitate the character that we see in our Father because we're part of his family. And so God's power has given us everything that we need so that we might imitate him, that we might live godly lives, that we might participate in his divine nature, that we might increasingly, ongoingly look more and more and more like Jesus. You see, our new calling is to live for God and not for ourselves. Our new calling is to reject our own desire to be God and to worship God as the one true God. And that brings us to the second thing Peter notes of the gospel change. He says that the gospel changes our desires. The psalmist Psalm 54, he writes, there's none righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. You see, 
it's not possible for us to reject our own desires to be God and worship God unless God gives us a new heart and new desires to long for that anyways. This is the biblical doctrine of regeneration. And I don't like get into like deep theological doctrine words with you guys often because I think sometimes they just muddy the waters. But this is really important to understand. Once we were dead, but God made us alive. Once we were insensitive to God's will and to his desires and to his views of right and wrong, but God made us sensitive to those desires. Without God waking us up to him, without God giving us new desires, without God giving us new passions, without him giving us his heart, giving us a new heart, then we would still be stuck. We would still be caught. We would still be blind and captive to sin. And the biblical doctrine of regeneration means that God has to regenerate your heart. He has to give you a new heart with new desires so that you'll even want to pursue him. And without him doing that work in our hearts, we don't even want God. We don't even look for him. We don't even long for him. And this is what Peter is reminding these Christians about in verse 4. He says, verse 4, that you would participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. He's saying, don't forget that God woke you up to him. Don't forget that God gave you a new heart with new desires to love him and to pursue him. And he says, these new desires, they're not compatible with your old desires. If you remember back to 1 Peter 1, he used this phrase, evil desires. Some translations say sinful desires. But what it literally means uh, is over-desires. It's controlling passions, controlling desires. Tim Keller, he really helpfully points out, I mentioned this in 1 Peter, he says, our biggest problem is not desires for forbidden fruit. Our biggest problem is over-desires. There is something about the sinful heart that wants to take something other than God and put it in that central place to make it the ultimate, most important thing. It is not wrong to desire sexual intimacy. It's not wrong to desire to have a new house. It's not wrong to work hard or to grow your career or to long for children or to want a raise at work. Like, it's not wrong. Any of those things are not inherently wrong. But the deception of sin is that it takes those good desires and turns them into over-desires. It turns those good desires into controlling desires, things that control and influence the ways that we spend our time and our money and our lives and the way that we live. And they consume our thoughts and our attention. They keep us from giving generously or from serving others. And they lead us towards worry and anxiety and fear. And they've become over-desires. They become something that we seek to satisfy us that was never meant to satisfy. And that's the definition of idolatry. We take good things, we turn them into God things, and when we turn them into God things, and we make them ultimate things. We look to them to give us what only God was meant to give us. We look to our money or our savings account. We look to our career, our stability in our marriage. We look to all those things to be the things that gives life and satisfaction and joy and fulfillment. And there's one thing in the whole universe that's meant to give us that. And it's enjoying and treasuring Jesus as king. That's the one thing thing that fulfills. That's the one thing that gives the life that we long for everything to give. And what happens is when we turn these other things into God things, they become destructive, controlling things. Peter would say they become corrupted things. So Peter says in verse 4, 
Yeah, you've got to remember the gospel saved you from that. God regenerated you. He gave you a new heart with new desires. Gospel's given you a way of escaping the corruption of the world caused by these over-desires. You're no longer a slave to your own sinful desires, which just lead to corruption and damage to you and to others. Instead, if you're a Christian, at some point in your conversion, at some point in your coming to the knowledge of Christ, God regenerated you. He gave you a new heart with new desires. I remember in college, my friend Cody, I spent over a year um, praying with Cody and studying the Gospel of John with him and just like looking for opportunities to talk with him about Jesus as he investigated Jesus and who he was. And I remember one night going over to Cody's house and um, Cody said to me, he told me that God had been convicting him about some things in his life that he just, he wanted to be done with. I had never once mentioned any of that stuff to my friend Cody. I'd never once talked about any of the things that he was talking about. You see, what was happening is that God had regenerated my friend Cody's heart. God had given him a new heart with new desires that he didn't have before. An awareness of sin that he didn't have before. A longing to obey God that he didn't have before. And he saw what was right and he saw what was wrong in ways that he had never seen That's God's regenerative work in our hearts to give us new desires. And so Peter says, because you have this new identity with new desires, he says, run after them, pursue them, give give everything to pursue God's new desires that he's put in you. See, verse five says, make every effort to add to your faith, goodness and knowledge and self-control and perseverance and godliness and mutual affection, brotherly love and love. And just because we're awake to God's new desires and just because God's given these new desires in our hearts doesn't mean that like, they're the only thing we want. It doesn't mean that our old desires are totally gone. It just means that we have new desires and the invitation is increasingly that we reject our old over-desires and we be increasingly become consumed by God's good desires, his will for us, his desires that he's put in our heart. It means that we're free to choose who we'll worship whether we'll worship ourselves or we'll worship God. And every day we have to choose to pursue godliness. Every day we have to say, whose desires am I going to live for today? Am I going to live for my own over-desires or am I going to increasingly let Jesus' desires become my first priorities, the things that matter most to me, the things, his desires become things that derive my actions and my attitudes and behaviors and all that I do. Every day we have to choose to pursue that, which leads us to the third thing that the gospel changes. The gospel changes our identity, and it changes our calling, and it changes our desires. And third, the gospel changes our source of power. God's made us his people. He's called us to be his ambassadors to the world as we live lives that imitate his character. But I cannot stress, I cannot overstress how important verse 3 is as we seek to pursue God's desires and live out this new identity and calling that he's given. He says, verse 3, it's his divine power that's given us everything we need for a godly life. Just notice, he doesn't say, it's your hard work and determination that gives you everything you need to live a godly life. He doesn't say, it's you punishing yourself enough when you make, when you make up that gives you everything you need to live a godly life. He doesn't say it's your strategies, your techniques, your accountability buddies, your effort, your momentum. It's none of those things that gives you everything you need to, to live a godly life. It's one thing. It's his divine power 
That's it. See, the gospel not only gives us a new identity and new desires and a new calling, the gospel gives us a new power to actually do it. The gospel gives us new power to actually live in light of those new desires. It's the same power that allowed Jesus, who became fully man, to live a sinless life. It's the indwelling power of the Spirit of God. See, our increasingly Christ-like character, our sanctification, it only happens by God's power living in us because Christ-like character only comes from His Spirit in us, changing us. That's the one way it comes. I think a lot of people think that like looking like Jesus is just about doing the things that he is doing. But like you read any of Jesus' words and what you find is that what matters most is the heart. What matters most is the motives. Like you can do good things that Jesus did without Jesus, but you cannot love like he does without him. You cannot be motivated by a worship for God, which is what true righteousness is. You cannot be have his motivations without him. You cannot have his power without him. You cannot be like Jesus without Jesus. Those, it's not possible. The same spirit that empowered Jesus to overcome the corrupt and sinful desires, the over-desires that tempted him as the same spirit that's in you and I, if we've come to know Jesus. That's the source of that power. The source of God's power in us is the knowledge of Jesus. Verse 3, His divine power is giving us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of Him, who's called us by His own glory and His own goodness. And when Peter says, and when Peter talked about this knowledge of Christ, he's not talking about in a an awareness of Christ, or an acknowledgement of Christ. No, the word that's translated knowledge there, it means coming to know something clearly and distinctly as true and as valid, and it's emphasized by a personal acquaintance, a nearness to it, and a necessary response. And so when Peter says the knowledge of Christ, he's not saying you just know something about Jesus. He's saying that you know him, that you love him, that you believe in him. John Piper says it this way, the Christian faith is not merely a set of doctrines to be accepted, it is a power to be experienced. Believing things about Jesus saves nobody. It's God's divine power that regenerates our hearts and enables us to know Christ, to put our faith in him. You see, when people say faith, faith is is the knowledge about the person and the work of Jesus and it is the ability to trust in Jesus' saving person and work in a saving way. And it's God's divine power that flows into our lives, flows into the lives of believers who have put their trust in Jesus and in his gospel that empowers us to actually live godly lives. More than that, it brings godly character about in us. It, that's, that's what it produces. Piper goes on to say, if the power of God does not flow into your life and make you more godly, then you're not Christ's. The mark of sonship is divine power, and the mark of power is godliness, which means a love for the things of God and a desire to walk in the ways of God. This brings us to the question that we need to ask is, so what do we do? Why does Peter remind them about these things? Why does Peter write these things to these Christians? And, and what's the response he's trying to bring about in these believers and, and for us as well? well I think there's, there's two things that are in view in Peter's words here. 
two reasons why he writes these things. One, he did it so they wouldn't be led astray by false teachers. In verse 10, he says, confirm your election. When we talk about election, that is a fancy theological word. It means it's talking about God's choosing of us, his saving us of us, his pursuing of us. And so when he says, confirm your election, he's saying, make sure you know if you're God's adopted son or daughter. And he's not telling everyone to second guess their salvation. I just need you to hear that. Peter's not like, all right, do the double check, make sure you're really in. That's, he's not trying to help have people second guess their own salvation. Just by the way, like, if you're saved, God wants you to know that. Like, he, he wants you to be sure of that. Like, that's inherent in, in who he is and how the gospel works, right? But what, instead, what Peter is saying, he's saying, look at the fruit of your lives, and more importantly, look at the fruit of the lives of these false teachers. Here's how you discern if someone's really following Jesus. Are they increasingly looking more and more like him? Are they increasingly looking more and more like Jesus? Because that's not what's happening in the lives of these false teachers. And it is what always happens in the life of someone who is God's adopted son or daughter, in someone who he's regenerated, in someone who he's given new desires, in someone who he's empowered by his spirit to live out his godly life. And Peter says, take a look at these false teachers. Is that true of them? What we'll see in the coming weeks, it is absolutely not. Instead of looking more and more like Jesus, instead of escaping these corrupted, sinful, over-desires, these teachers, as we'll see in the coming weeks, are both living godless lives, and they're encouraging others to join in, and they're encouraging others to be consumed by their own evil desires. One of the chief signs of false teachers is that they encourage you to continue in sin. One of the chief signs of false teachers is that they encourage you to continue in sin. It's fine. Don't worry about it. Everything's cool. Just love God. Paul warns young Timothy about this. It's easy to listen to what you want to hear. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul writes to Timothy, this young pastor, he says, the time will come when people won't want to put up with sound doctrine. Instead, they'll, instead to suit their own desires, they'll gather around them a great number of teachers who say what their itching ears want to hear. When we're being consumed and controlled by our sinful desires, what we don't want to hear is someone telling us that they're sinful over desires. What we want to hear is someone saying, that's who you are. It's part of your character. It's part of your identity. Pursue it. That's you. Go for it. Yeah, that's not wrong. That, uh, that's, of course, that's okay. God understands you. He knows you. That Pursue that. That's what we want to hear. It's too easy to listen to what we want to hear, but far too often we just want to hear an affirmation of our evil desires, an affirmation of our own desire to be God, our own desire to decide what is right and what is wrong, our own desire to decide what makes us truly happy instead of submitting to the creator of all things who designed us and knows what actually satisfies. So Peter says, be aware. He's not telling people to be hypercritical of every leader. He's simply saying, make sure the people that you are listening to for spiritual advice actually resemble the one they say they're pointing you towards. Make sure the people you are looking to for spiritual leadership, make sure they actually look like Jesus. Make sure they are increasingly, ongoingly looking like Jesus. I hope that you see that stuff in Aaron and I. I hope that you see those things in your small group leaders. And I am by no means perfect. If you think that I am, you can talk to my wife. She can point out a few things, okay? Um, and not like in a hateful way, but just in like a, yeah, I live with him. Like, I, I know, there's, 
Not perfect. Definitely it's not in that category, right? But what I hope that you see in me is ongoing growth. I try to be honest with you guys about the ways that God is changing me as I study his word and the way that God's word is like applying to my own heart and the ways that I'm wrestling with it as I prep and as I study each week. In large part because if God's word's not changing me, then like why should it ever change you? And if you're in my small group, what I hope is that you see is that the gospel is ongoingly good news to my heart. That I'm constantly being reminded about the truths about who Jesus is and all that he's done in ways that like actually keep changing who I am. I hope what you hear and what you see are the ways that God is at work sanctifying me. Because one of the things that that's good is that like, that means like, though I'm not perfect, like you can like trust me. (laughs) When you're looking for people to speak into your life, gotta ask the question, are they looking more and more like Jesus every day or not? That's the question. That's the, it's one of the litmus tests. So Peter reminds them about these truths of the gospel so that they'd be, so they won't be led astray by false teachers, but he also reminds them about these gospel truths so that they would actually live in light of them. He doesn't want them, he says in verse 10, I think, don't, not to be ineffective or unproductive in their knowledge of Christ. Peter knows that if they compromise on their theology, then they'll compromise on their mission. And it's the mission of demonstrating and declaring the gospel so that people will come to know and love and follow and worship Jesus. What you believe always changes what you do. And if because of your bad theology, your life is no different than the people around you, you have no ability to proclaim the good news about the gospel. And so Peter says in verse 5, make every effort to add to your faith goodness and knowledge and self-control and perseverance and godliness and mutual affection. Verse 8, for if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they'll keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of Jesus. So Peter is saying, never be satisfied with where you're at in your walk with Jesus. Never be satisfied. Never think, you know what? We've come far enough. I've grown a lot. We're going to take it easy for a while. Peter says, it's not that being godly is what safeguards you. It's not that having faith is what safeguards you. It's an ongoing pursuit of godliness and faith, an ongoing pursuit of perseverance, an ongoing pursuit of righteousness, an ongoing pursuit of love for others. It is the ongoing pursuit of those things that keeps you, uh, that keeps you safe and it keeps you productive and it keeps you, not from, keeps you from being ineffective in your knowledge of Jesus. What he's saying is you're never standing still spiritually. There is no stationary floating in the ocean of desire. You are either swimming towards godliness, you are either making every effort to pursue it, or you are drifting towards sin. Those are the only two options. There is no anchor in the sea of desires. You are either swimming towards godliness or you are drifting towards sin. So the question is, how do you swim towards godliness? How do you actually pursue living in light of God's desires instead of your own evil desires? Because like, if you're honest with yourself, if I'm honest, like, that's a battle in my heart often. Like, I often have those, like those desires. I'm like, I want to live for me. Like all the time I sense that in my own heart. I want to live for me. I want to live for my own comfort. I want to live for my own happiness. And what Jesus says, no, is that I've called you to live for me. I've given you what you need so that you might follow me and you might do the hard thing that is to pursue godliness and to pursue a life that's about me and my kingdom rather than about you and yours. 
Verse 4 answers the question about how. Verse 4 says, God's giving us his very great and precious promises so that through them you might participate in his divine nature. I love Peter's language there. Like if he, he was just, He's like trying to add words to make it incredible because he like can't come up with enough. And he says, remember God's very great and precious promises. We've got to cling to the promises of the gospel if we're going to run and swim towards godliness instead of drift towards sin. That's why it's so important to read our Bibles and to pray, asking God to speak to us what we need to hear from him in order to live each day for him instead of for ourselves, in order to root his promises deep into our heart, in order to root the promises that we are his beloved people, his sent people, in order to root the promises deep in our heart, the promise that we are the promise of our heavenly inheritance and our blessing that is waiting for us in heaven. And it's not stuff, it's being with him. The promise that we are loved, not because of our performance, but because of Jesus's performance on our behalf. The promise that obedience, even through suffering, brings about the real, truest, greatest, lasting joy. The promise that God's desires bring about the greatest good and our lasting joy over our evil desires in a way that they never can actually give. The promise that when we fail, we are still absolutely loved by him. The promise that God's strength and our weakness is the way he displays his ultimate power in us. The Bible says, John Piper says it this way. He says, we battle sinful desires with superior pleasures. We battle sinful desires with superior pleasures. He says, when we hang the carrot of God's promises in front of our eyes, we have the power to resist the temptations of evil and instead are lured onto paths of justice and love unto eternal Every day, every morning when you wake up, from now until you meet Jesus in heaven and our old self is completely removed from who we are, every day you wake up and there's going to be a battle in your heart. And the battle is going to be, will you live for yourself or will you live for King Jesus? And some days that feels like a really, it feels like an easy choice. And some days it feels like you are absolutely in the trenches And the only way that on the good days and on the hard days that you actually choose to pursue Jesus and his desires instead of giving in to your corrupt and sinful over-desires is when you remember the promises of God and you say it's worth it in the midst of everything to pursue him. He actually gives life. Pursuing sex in the way I want to pursue it, that's not going to give the life I want. Pursuing finances or pursuing Whatever it is in the way I want to do it is not the thing that actually gives life. Doing things God's way in his timing as he would see fit for his purposes. That's what actually brings life. It's what actually brings joy. It's what actually is what we long for deeply. So the question is, are you making every effort to pursue godliness? Are you swimming or are you drifting? I promise you it's worth it to swim. Even though it can be hard and even though it can be painful, it is worth it to swim towards godliness. And Peter says you're not swimming towards godliness to get something from God. You are swimming towards it because God has given you everything you need to do it. You are already his 
beloved, adopted children. You are already, have a new identity, a new purpose. He's given you new desires and he's given you new power to actually do it. So because you have new desires and a new identity and a new power, then actually pursue it. It's not to get something from God. It's not so he would be pleased with you or happy with you. He's happy with you because you put your faith in Jesus and he could not be more pleased with Jesus. Like there's no way you can be better than him. So the good news about the gospel is that when we put our faith in him, through our knowledge of Jesus, God's given us everything we need to look like him. And so we honor the Lord by giving our lives to pursuing godliness and to pursuing his character. And we honor the Lord by not being led astray by false teachers. God is at work in transforming us into the image of his son, Jesus. Ask him to do it in you. Every day, ask him that he would do it. Ask him to do it for your good and for his glory. You need his power and you have it in the gospel. That's why we take communion every week. Like, communion is not just like this thing that we always do. We do it every week because we need to remember. We forget all the time. What we need to do is we need to choose to remember. We remember Jesus' blood given for us. We need to remember his body shed, his blood shed for us, his body broken for us. We need to remember that stuff because in remembering that, we remember the source of the power that we have to actually live lives that honor him. Communion doesn't make us right with God. It doesn't save us. It doesn't change our status or our standing before God. There's only one thing that does that. It's faith in Jesus. It's knowledge, saving knowledge of him. And so communion is a chance for us to remember. Remember the good news about the gospel and to come once again and say, Jesus, I need you to fill me with your power so I might live for you. I want to remember all that you've done. I want to hang the carrot in front of my heart of the, your very great and precious promises that you proved to me, that you gave to me in the gospel. I want to hang that in front of my eyes so that I'll pursue it this week. So we do when we're taking communion. We're remembering the good news about the gospel in a way that helps us to live in light of it. So as we sing and as we worship, as we remember the gospel together in song, if you put your trust in Jesus, if you have the knowledge of him, a saving knowledge of him, then Go back whenever you're ready and take communion. You just dip the bread in the juice. But if, if you know things about Jesus, but you don't know him yet, then I would just encourage you to hold off on taking communion because it would just be a religious experience. And what we long for you is not to get religion, but it's to get Jesus. You don't need to be a member here to take communion. You just need to belong to Jesus. Let's pray. God, we're so thankful for you. We're so thankful for your word. God, and most of all, we are so grateful for the gospel. God, we are so grateful that the gospel changes our identity and our purpose because once we were dead, alien enemies of you, but now we're adopted children. God, and we are so grateful for the truths about the gospel which remind us that we've given, been given by you new desires and that although we don't always live for them, that we have them. In a way, because you regenerated our hearts and gave us those new desires. And so, God, we ask that you would give us power to live in light of them. We think that you've sent your spirit into each one of us, that we might actually have the power that we need, your divine power living in us.
God, and so we ask that you would increasingly, ongoingly, turn us into people that look more and more and more like Jesus. God, we pray that you do that for our good, but most of all for your great and abiding.